0: so there's not a really kind of strong correlation between where the supply is scarce and where the price is high and that puts those regions in a very difficult situation of having essentially through low water prices encouraged the kinds of development that are thirsty
1: Welcome to Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavins, a professor at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of the Harvard Environmental Economics Program and the Harvard Project on Climate Agreements. Uh, as listeners of these podcast episodes certainly know, I engage in conversation with leading experts from academia, private industry government, and NGOs, with our focus always on environmental economics and policy. And today, we're very fortunate to have with us someone who has had broad experience working in multiple sectors, in academia, in a leading think tank, and in government, on a variety of environmental issues, always from an economic perspective. And I'm referring to my longtime colleague, friend, and former student, Sheila Olmsted, who is a professor at the Lyndon Baines Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas, Austin, a university fellow of Resources for the Future, a member of the Science Advisory Board of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, and now the editor of the Journal of the Association of Environmental and Resource Economists. If that weren't enough, I'll also take note of the fact that she was previously Senior Economist for Energy and Environment at the President's Council of Economic Advisors, a Senior Fellow at Resources for the Future, and an Assistant and then Associate Professor of Environmental Economics at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Sheila, welcome to Environmental Insights.
0: Thanks, Rob. Thanks so much for that kind introduction.
1: So I'm very interested to hear your thoughts about the economic dimensions of environmental policy, including your specialization, the economics of water quantity and water quality policies. But before we talk about that, as our listeners know, I always like to go back to where you came from and where you've been and how you came to be in the position you are. And when I say go back, I do mean go way back. So let's start. Where did you grow up?
0: So I grew up in a bunch of different places. It's always hard to answer the question, you know, where are you from? (laughs) Because I'm from many different places. I was born in Lansing, Michigan. Uh, we moved before I started school to Chicago, Illinois, um, and then when I was in first grade moved to Brussels, Belgium. When I was in fourth grade, moved to uh, a suburb of Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and that's where I graduated from high school. My parents moved shortly after I graduated, so I went to college at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, Virginia, um, and you know my parents were overseas again during that time. And then they ended up back here in Austin, Texas. So I've spent some time um, kind of in and around Austin for a long time before I moved here in in 2013.
1: Now, that sounds like uh, one or both of your parents were either academics or in the military, or is that (laughs) not the explanation?
0: (laughs) that is not the explanation so my father was a sort of a sales manager and then a marketing manager for a company that sold medical supplies um and and my mother was a nurse and so she worked in most but not all of the places that we lived
1: i see so um you graduate high school and then you go to college at university of virginia is that Mm -hmm. right that's right and what did you study there
0: I studied political and social thought. I mean, my parents were very encouraging, but I think in a way it was much to their chagrin (laughs) that that I chose, you know, what was essentially a political theory major. um, Mm -hmm. And I loved it. You know, I think I went there interested in studying what they would have called at the time at UVA foreign affairs, something maybe, Mm -hmm. you know, other universities might call international relations, um... And I found those classes really interesting, but I was just more intellectually engaged by my teachers in political theory. And so sort of mixture of, you know, philosophy, history, um, you know, deep reading of, you know, both fiction and nonfiction texts. It was an exciting time in my life, and I feel like I got a a great broad-based kind of liberal arts education there at UVA.
1: Yeah, I'm all in favor of liberal arts education. I mean, my degree is in philosophy, which is (laughs) even more abstract and theoretical. So that sounds like a very good foundation, though, for then what you did next, I believe, which was, at least in terms of schooling, which was the MPA degree at the LBJ school.
0: Yeah, that's right. So first I went to work in Washington, D.C., as many graduates of the University of Virginia do. It's kind of a natural mm-hmm. destination. Most of my roommates you know, had been from Northern Virginia and had you know, spent time in D.C. or had ambitions to work in D.C. And so I did that for a couple of years and then looked to graduate school in public policy. And that was a little fluky. I was a temp at the World Bank, mm-hmm. and I was working in the Southern Africa infrastructure section. And I was working with some folks who had been to the Kennedy School and other public policy programs and recommended to me that I look into, you know, kind of master's in public policy programs. And so I did. And I looked at a lot of them. Um, At the time, my father was sick. He had a a type of leukemia. And so my choice was to go to the LBJ school. And it really, it changed my life. It was, you know, one of those many moments in my life. I always tell students, you know, kind of life is long. And if you follow your nose, right, and, and try to make the best decisions you can based on both your own personal you know, desires and your professional ambitions. If you kind of combine those two two things in a way that's comfortable for you, you can just end up in the right place at the right time. And I think for me, the LBJ school was the right place at the right time.
1: And I hope that your next stop at Harvard for the PhD in public policy was also a right place at the right time, <laughs> but tell me if it's also otherwise. changed my
0: life no no it was it was amazing right so I you know I while I was a master's student I was juggling this you know really challenging situation of having a difficult family situation and helping you know helping my mother essentially as one of my father's um, primary caregivers mm-hmm. um, and then you know but also made some of the best friends of my life and started studying mm-hmm. things like the reason I say it changed my life is again I kind of came there with this general interest in foreign affairs and international relations and started out on that track. I got an mm-hmm. internship in Baku, Azerbaijan, with the State Department for the summer between my two years and ended up, you know, my father's health situation declined pretty dramatically and unexpectedly. And so I ended up having to cancel that and just sort of scrape around for, okay, what internships are left, you know, here in the summer in Austin that I can possibly find. And I I landed one at the Texas, what was then the Texas Natural Resource Conservation. Commission, or the TNRCC, which was affectionately called, or maybe not affectionately called, Trainwreck at the time. Mm-hmm.
1: I think so that's now, not affectionate.
0: <laughs> now called the Texas Council on Environmental Quality, um, and I mm-hmm. started working with Steve Niemeyer, a colleague who just recently left there, actually, and and some others in the Border Affairs Division, and working on you know what they were. What they did is they sort of sent me down to the border region to understand what the infrastructure needs were in mm-hmm. these border communities called colonias, which are, mm-hmm. um, you know, communities in, on the Texas. There are also communities like this in, on the Mexican side of the border as well as in other U.S. states. But Texas kind of has a, the large majority of them, you know, more than 1,000 communities with what one would consider substandard infrastructure services of all kinds, well, drinking water, wastewater, you know, school bus service, roads, trash pickup, I mean, almost everything, um, you know, in these, you know, Fairly substandard housing developments.
1: When you came to Harvard, you already had an interest in in water. Yeah, as I that's recall.
0: right. Yeah, that's right. I was, you know, my general interest in environmental policy altogether came from that. What was in a way kind of a fluky experience, but was just so incredibly enriching. I just couldn't stop thinking about, you know, this problem that mm-hmm. we have. You know, an incredibly wealthy country. You know, definitely a water-scarce state. You know, Texas ranges from semi-arid to arid, but a lot of the most severe problems of access to um, drinking water at the time, that's gotten much better, but certainly still sanitation, um, were in the more humid, you know, parts of the state where water supply is not an ongoing major problem. And I found that just fascinating and um, a a sort of set of problems that I hadn't really thought about. um, And it was was, uh, terrific for me.
1: And you completed the Ph.D. in public policy at Harvard in 2002, having done a, a, a great dissertation, which was in fact on uh, urban water demand, water pricing. Is that yep, right? Yep,
0: that's correct. Yeah, yeah. So, what
1: was your first job out of school?
0: Um, my first job out of my Ph.D. program was yes. at Yale. So that was I, I took a job as an assistant professor at what was then the Yale School of Forestry, now has a much broader name, right? School of mm-hmm. the Environment. Um, and that was also a great fit. I mean, I feel incredibly lucky. I've had I've had these wonderful jobs. Um, you know, really none of which I can complain about. Um, they all really kind of grew me in different ways. Um, I was, you know, obviously an assistant professor. I was teaching. So I was teaching environmental economics, mm-hmm. natural resource economics, and some you know advanced seminars. Um, and then I was doing research in an environment that was just fantastic. I had colleagues like Chris Timmons and mm-hmm. Aaron Manser and Nat Cohan and um, mm-hmm. others um, that were just really fun. Rob Mendelson, right, fun mm-hmm. to work with and uh, present papers to. Bill Nordhaus is another one. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a terrific time. Also, Um, you know, it was also the time in my life I was having, you know, my first couple of kids and, you know, Mm -hmm. so my family life was exciting and, um, and changing rapidly. Um, So I look back on that time as, as, you know, particularly fondly as well.
1: So you stayed there until 2007, then went to RFF. My recollection is for family reasons, you wanted to relocate to Washington. And then from RFF you went home again to the L B J School. Is that yeah.
0: Right? Yeah. That was really again, you know, fluky and lucky. Um I had at the time, you know, my my spouse, my husband, uh, Todd is also an academic and so as mm-hmm. you know, that's a tricky situation for you yes. know, for two uh professionals to handle sometimes. It can be hard to find two, you know, wonderful academic jobs in the same city. Um and we you know, we were both happy in Washington DC, but this opportunity came up, it was actually an opportunity for him, so I was the spousal hire or the as, you know, again, sometimes <laughs> lovingly called the quote trailing spouse <laughs> coming to UT Austin. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, we, you know, kind of picked up. I had just had my, my third kid and we picked up and moved from DC back here. And, you know, it's had, I've missed my colleagues at RFF. That was also a wonderful experience for me. Um, but it's also been nice to be back home here. You know, my mother is here. And mm-hmm. uh, for other reasons, you know, Austin feels a lot like
1: home. That's great. And then uh, f- while you're at the uh, LBJ school, you took a leave of absence to go to the Council of Economic Advisors as a senior staff economist. Now we get to the fun stuff, Sheila. You were there during the transition from the Obama to the Trump administration. I what was. the heck was that like? <laughs> it
0: was insane. Yeah, um, it was one of those things, you know, you this is a position, as probably many of our listeners know, that... Um, typically is a one-year position, right? So the federal government essentially, you know, draws up a contract and it pays your university. You know, you can be an environmental economist, public finance, right? All different fields, macro. Um, and the CEA is always looking for, um, you know, the senior economists to, to staff these positions who will are willing to spend essentially one academic year there. And so you take that job, I think Jason Furman, my chair, um, who's one of your colleagues, one of mm-hmm. your wonderful colleagues at the Kennedy School, um, probably made me an offer in february if i'm remembering this right um might have been slightly later than that of 2016 um and at the time you know we knew there was a an election coming up but my my assumption was that there would either be a you know sort of a president hillary clinton or a president someone you know a moderate republican of some kind that was you know a lot of the field um, reasonable kind of assumption looked like that <laughs> <laughs> at the time and then i recall you know driving i also I, i've spent Some time and really enjoy an affiliation that I have with the Property and Environment Research Center in Bozeman, Montana. And so Mm -hmm. my family and I have been up there um, for several summers. And driving up there the summer before I started at CEA, I I didn't start with them. I kind of started long distance in June and then um, started officially in mid-August. You know, we were seeing a lot more, you know, Trump-Pence signs than we Mm -hmm. were, you know, Clinton signs. And so, I started to have this sinking feeling that, you know, that something might turn out differently than I had anticipated and, you know, arguing with myself and thinking through, okay, you know, how will this go, um, you know, if things turn out that way. And then they did, you know, we were, I was there busy, um, as President Obama used to say, kind of running through the tape, um, you know, with the team at CEA and trying Mm -hmm. to, you know, Put the finishing touches on some important achievements especially with respect to climate change things like you know the Kigali agreement was in process right. at the time right? worrying about you know whether the CAFE standards and other you know kind of key elements of the administration's um, you know approach to meeting its ambitious uh, greenhouse gas emissions reduction goals were going to work out um, and then you know we had an election in November that surprised many many people including you know folks um, in the White House so Um, That was a, you know, 180-degree shift in in what the environmental priorities of the administration were.
1: So what did you work on at CEA? Climate, water, other things?
0: You know, it's interesting because while I was there... um, You know, climate was the big, big focus. There were a few things that came through that were a little closer to my natural wheelhouse, the things Mm -hmm. that I had been working on in my own research. But I fully anticipated that that was how it was going to be. You know, obviously I talked with folks who were there already and with Jason. And and then the other thing that is kind of interesting is that while while Jason Furman was the chair, his two members, the other two political appointees at the CEA were Sandy Black and Jay Mm Shambaugh. And each senior economist kind of reported for the most part, to one of them. And the, you know, the environment energy person reported uh, to Jay. Mm -hmm. And so Jay is a macroeconomist. And and so, you know, his thinking and our thinking and and the work that we were able to do together was mostly about, you know, focusing on these kind of macro issues with respect to climate change and, you know, Getting, communicating about what the economic impacts of doing nothing would be relative to, you know, doing, you know, uh, taking some of the more ambitious, um, you know, targets that the administration was promoting. And, and so partly as a result of those sort of structure, the administrative structure of the CEA at the time, and partly because that was what was on the agenda um, at this kind of tail end of the Obama, you know, two, two terms, um, that's what I focused on mostly.
1: Now recently, very recently, you've once again entered government services, although from the outside, by joining the Science Advisory Board of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, what's happening at the science advisory board it it, it had also changed quite a bit yes the Trump it had years. changed
0: quite a bit and and actually I feel like I almost got caught in the sort of squeeze play <laughs> there on the science advisory board so I actually was asked at the very end of the Trump administration and so I'm thinking it, it, it had to be you know December of you know post-election mm-hmm. December of of 2020 mm-hmm. um, by I guess it was Andrew Wheeler, right, who was the the, uh, mm-hmm. the EPA administrator at the time right. to serve. And I thought, well, this is unusual, right? Because I, you know, w- one thing, just as a little background, the Trump administration had been criticized for, um, you know, for the perception was kind of stacking the deck on the on the science advisory board, bringing in, you know, t- asking a number of high-profile, you know, accomplished academics to leave and then bringing in, you know, a lot of folks from industry and other academics that were perceived right. to be potentially more sympathetic to an, a deregulatory agenda. Um, so in any case, they made some changes at the very end of the of the year. Um, I was appointed, you know, my term officially started in January of 2021, and then we all got a letter, you know, saying that um, – you know, the new EPA administrator under President Biden was going to um, reconstitute the whole SAB. So I wasn't sure if I would make it through <laughs> to the mm-hmm. next next round, but I was really grateful that I did. Um, you know, I'm excited about the work. I, you know, I only have a, a vague sense so far of what um, what I'm going to be working on because um, we're kind of just getting up and started. They've gotten all these appointments process- processed now, but I'm very excited about the other folks. You know, that that are appointed, in particular, my environmental economist colleagues like Dave Kaiser and Lala Ma. Right, the folks that I, um, mm-hmm. some of whom I've right. already worked with, and others of whom I, you know, I so certainly know.
1: You're on. The, does the environmental economics advisory committee still exist? Is it that does, what you're It does. It has
0: a slightly different name, but it's yes economic analysis committee or something like that but yeah that's what so i, I mean. chaired
1: that a while quite a while ago who chairs it now
0: we don't have a chair and so i'm not sure whether that means that we won't right that that's just how the structure is going to be no or you whether may get a phone something... call
1: any day she i think it's <laughs> what's going to happen
0: and this may be something that's a little further down the road so um, but it's it's i'm really looking forward to it yeah, i mean you know my great. my work on regulation has been uh, you know among the most rewarding work um, that I've done, so I'm I'm really looking forward to that. Well,
1: it's also true that given the nature of what EPA is responsible for across the board, if you look at the, the whole list of statutes and regulations, uh, the Science Advisory Board, at least during my tenure there, which lasted a good 10 years, if not more, uh, as a member and then chair, tends to focus a lot more on you spend time on issues of like water quality than one does on climate change per se. So mm-hmm, it, it, mm-hmm. you may find it uh, a wonderful experience in that regard.
0: I hope so, yeah.
1: So let's turn to the economic dimensions of environmental policy. As we've said, much of your research is focused on water resources. I think both from the water quantity perspective, in terms of demand, and then the water quality perspective, sometimes supply, but perhaps also uh, demand. C- can you tell us which parts of the United States, if it's specific regions, states, or cities, stand out as being best or worst in regard to water quantity management, including water pricing as one approach to managing water quantity demand?
0: Oh, that's such a hard question. Um, you know, what I would say is that the Western United States, the more arid parts of the United States, so sort of Mm -hmm. arid and semi-arid states, um, struggle more, right, Mm -hmm. to, they're also high growth states, many of them. And so they struggle more with, you know, how to meet especially urban demand, given, you know, concerns about the natural supply. And that gets even more interesting as we look to the future, you know, with the climate changing as it is. Um, And so there's been a fair amount of attention to that. You know, the Eastern states, the more humid states, also struggle a bit with this, you know, there are certain um, parts of the country, in particular, where there are you know these interstate conflicts over river basins and right how much water is available, um, mm-hmm. but they have less of a ongoing problem right of scarcity. Scarcity there is more a story right. of you know a particularly dry summer, yes. um, for example right or restrictions on withdrawal due to you know regulations under the Endangered Species Act right some the very sort of specific cases and that's not to say that they're not important but generally the West you know is has a a greater uh, challenge set of challenges there. And the the hard thing to look at as an economist is that you would expect then, right, that all else equal prices would be higher in Western states. And and in some cases that's true. You know, you sort of look at high profile cities like Los Angeles, um, that have you know Austin even, you know, water rates especially for you know, the higher levels of use in the summertime are really quite high mm-hmm. rel- you know, to, compared to the average. But it's not true as a whole across the West. There's still plenty of places like Phoenix, right, you know, a desert climate for all intents and purposes, you know, where water prices are pretty low. So there's not a really kind of strong correlation between where the supply is scarce mm-hmm. and where the price is high. And that puts those regions in a very difficult situation of having essentially through low water prices encouraged the kinds of development right. that are thirsty, you know, without having the tools, you know, in the long run to to meet that demand.
1: So is, is there a trend over time? I mean, it's, it's approximately 20 years since uh, you, Michael Hanneman, and I worked together on these issues than I did a bit separately from that with you, but I have not kept up. So is there a trend in terms of the number of municipalities or utilities which use water pricing as a management tool, or has it been going the other direction, or is it sort of static?
0: I I would say it's fairly static, and unfortunately, Um, you know, the ground is moving under their feet. So now, right, Mm -hmm, if you're in California, mm -hmm. you might be particularly concerned about reservoirs that in the long run, right, major, major reservoirs that in the long run are not going to be supplying um, the kinds of, you know, of of quantities that they have in the past. And um, so even if things were improving, I don't know that we could say they're improving at a pace that's keeping up with that kind of change.
1: Do you know where the United States stands compared to other countries in the world on water quantity management including but not necessarily using pricing mechanisms intelligently
0: you know I would say that in the agricultural sector everyone does poorly the united Mm -hmm. states is no better than 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 anyone else and in the sense that most agricultural water use isn't priced at all i mean obviously farmers have to pay the costs of pumping water and you know bringing it through either canals or rights different kinds of irrigation systems um but they don't actually pay you know per unit of water that they withdraw from a raw source um and that um you know that has really significant implications right for the ability to to use prices to manage um to manage demand it's not even metered for the most part so i would say we're, we're really no different than other countries mm-hmm. in that sector i probably were somewhat better in the urban sector i mean that's a little mm-hmm. speculative on my part i haven't I, I can remember um making a presentation a long time ago with some oecd data and saying hey it doesn't look like we're you know any worse um for sure but i i can't be more precise
1: than that if we were talking instead, though, about water quality management, then I would think, I don't know, you tell me uh, if I'm wrong, please, Sheila. I would think that the U.S. would rank fairly high in terms of water quality management. Is that I would right? say that
0: that's correct. So we have, you know, the main tool... Um you know, for addressing ambient water quality issues, mm-hmm. so that is not piped drinking water, but, you know, rivers and streams and yes. lakes, um, is the Clean Water Act. The Clean Water mm-hmm. Act set up some very ambitious goals. You know, in terms of the economics of it, we would probably say too ambitious in the sense of, you know, a goal of driving emissions to, you know, water, raw water down to zero by the 1980s, which obviously we haven't haven't achieved. So lots of people have been, you know, critical of that. But partly because that was so ambitious, um, you know, and uh, the country 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 then has been striving toward, you know, these pretty, um, you know, pretty stringent goals. We do quite well relative to, you know, certainly relative to developing countries. Um, One of the big challenges that we have is that, you know, some of our most severe remaining water pollution problems in the United States, I mean, the story is very much like air pollution. Gosh, we're so much better than we were in the 1970s, right? The Cuyahoga River doesn't catch on fire and so on. But, um, our remaining major water quality challenges have mostly to do with agricultural uh, water pollution, urban runoff, um, and these are not things that were well addressed in the Clean Water Act, the structure of the Clean Water Act, and so we just kind of continue to struggle with the fact that these are uh, really severe remaining problems, but they're and some of them are essentially unregulated
1: now, s- something that's really changed, I think dramatically over the last several years, both within environmental economics and environmental policy, is much greater attention to what is typically labeled environmental justice, largely the distributional impacts of environmental problems and the distributional impacts of environmental policies across income groups, uh, people of color on and on uh and in the water area certainly the tragedy in flint michigan with the water contamination from old lead pipes brought a lot of attention to this are we seeing significant change for the better
0: i would say yes i mean even in the recent infrastructure you know package that's being debated in the congress there are funds in there right for um for helping with the replacement of lead pipes for example um And so one thing I think the environmental economics literature has really contributed to is showing just how strongly negative the impacts are of things like exposure to, you know, lead and drinking water. I have a PhD student who just started a postdoc at the University of Illinois,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, Urbana-Champaign, Jamong Jung, who, you know, her job market paper focuses on this issue. Even if we look at levels of exposure kind of below what we would think of, you know, what the Safe Drinking Water Act has labeled as a you know, critical action level, you can still see um, very severe, um, you know, impacts of lead exposure, and especially between ages zero to five on things like third grade test scores, the likelihood Mm -hmm. of high school graduation. I mean, you know, we've been tracking this long enough now that, you know, she's starting to look at labor force outcomes, you know, later into the, you know, someone's 20s and 30s. And just like on the air pollution side, we can see, um, you know, that those effects are are really severe and and negative. And so I think there's both increased attention to it in terms of research. Mm -hmm. And right now, we're starting to see more movement. Now, the thing that's so disappointing, right, is that the, the, quote, crisis in Flint, right, we think of it as something that, oh, that happened, you know, several years ago, but really it's just a rolling crisis, right, mm-hmm. that once, um, you know, once those pipes are there and they're leaching lead, um, it just continues to be a problem for those households.
1: Well, I think one thing that's likely is, given the high priority that's given to environmental justice in the Biden administration's EPA, you're likely at the Science Advisory Board to have an opportunity to delve into and to provide some real insights to the administrator on these issues going forward. I hope
0: that's right. I hope that's right.
1: So we'll end with that. Uh, Sheila, thank you very much for taking time to join us today.
0: It was fun. Thanks so much for having me.
1: So thanks again to our guest today, Sheila Olmsted, professor at the Lyndon Baines Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas, Austin. Please join us for the next episode of Environmental Insights, conversations on policy and practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavins. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.keep.hks.harvard.edu.